Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Powder 8 podcast, the podcast for backcountry skiers. I'm your host, KT Miller. I apologize for the delay. I got a new summer job, and it took me longer to make time to sit down and edit this episode. I would say I've been busy, but I don't like that word. Um... I think we make time in our lives for things that are important to us. So I made time to edit the next episode. It just took me a month instead of two weeks. So it goes. Um, I'm going to go ahead and lower the bar for myself and try to get one episode out per month this summer. And I'll try to pick the pace back up to two per month in December. So I'm especially excited about this episode because I want to cover the entire spectrum of backcountry skiing, from lightweight schemo to heavier gear and more freeride focused um, riding. So keep that in mind, a variety will be coming down the pipeline. In this episode, I chat with Mike Foote. Mike's accomplishments speak for themselves. He has run 600 miles from Missoula, Montana to Banff, Alberta, Canada. He competed in the World Championship Ski Mountaineering races in Europe this year, and he was a ski patroller for a handful of years early on before he even got into skimo racing. Um, prior to that, he rose in the ranks of the U.S. ultra running scene. He uh, has some really great perspectives on the sport of backcountry skiing. So sit back, butter your toast, and please enjoy this interview with Missoula, Montana's own Mike Foote. It's good to, I get it, it's good to do research. <laughs> this was Sorry. where I was, I was trying to Google you from the tire store this morning. Nice. <laughs> and I was I'm trying sure you, to figure out yeah. what that... And anyway, let's dive in. <laughs> um, uh, we're laughing already. So for our listeners, I'm sitting down with Mike Foot in Missoula, Montana. I just pulled in here for the climate march tomorrow on Saturday, April 29th. Um, and Mike has kind of been an acquaintance for a while, and I've really admired some of the adventures he's done. So. Thanks for um, making time and letting me invade your house for an interview. You're always welcome. It's good to be here with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to kick things off, um, let's just start with a little bit of your background. Like I said earlier, I didn't even, I don't know where you're from and I don't know how you ended up learning to ski and finding the mountains and moving west and kind of like what's your general story my general story yeah <laughs> oh man uh so i grew up in northeast ohio in kind of a small town of three thousand folks like an hour northeast of cleveland you just imagine lots of cow dairy cow farms and that sort of thing and dirt roads and midwest midwest oh. uh, i grew up playing baseball was my form of recreation uh-huh we were state champions one year. Wow. It's a big deal in Ohio. And I, yeah, I was a very passionate, passionate baseball player. Uh, I didn't 
spend any time in the mountains growing up. Uh, open spaces involved kind of just being out, building forts in the woods across the street kind of thing. And I spent a lot of time outside, uh, a lot of time outside, but it was in the confines of a, a different life. So, uh, yeah, I, I did that growing up. And when I was 18, I was a freshman in college at a university in Ohio, Miami of Ohio, and did a <clears throat> road trip for spring break out to Moab, Utah. And I saw my first mountain that day. I was driving, we were driving west to Moab as the sun was setting and we were in Eastern Colorado on I-70. And in the horizon as the sun was setting, like we were, we were still pretty far in Eastern Colorado as the sun was setting. And I remember like saying to like the folks in the car, I was like, what is that? What is that? And the sun was setting and you could just see this little hump on the horizon. And like I, I took a photo and I, I don't know if I still have the photo, but it was my first mountain that I ever saw. It was like this little bump on the horizon. And we drove through the middle of the night and I woke up like on the Colorado River just outside of Moab and my mind was blown. Like my mind was utterly blown. And I like knew that I would love being out west and like that landscape, but having never experienced it, I just, I had no idea. And so I fell in love with the American West, the mountains, even though I was in the canyons for that trip, but uh, yeah, kind of changed the trajectory of my life and started, uh, <clears throat> I moved out to Colorado that following year and took kind of a gap year in college <laughs> and slept on a friend's uh, couch in Steamboat, Colorado and started skiing out there uh, uh -huh. and I was a ski instructor, though I didn't really know much about skiing at the time. <laughs> And had a lot to learn. I did actually, my first, I should go back. My first time skiing was in New York. So I did see some like small hills, like an hour and a half from where I grew up. Actually, you could be in Western New York, which sounds crazy, but there's a little ski area called Peak and Peak. And I remember we'd go there on like the school bus. There was like a ski club and you'd go a handful of times for like night skiing. And I still remember like my outfit was like <clears throat> my baseball cap, my like hooded sweatshirt, my like blue jeans and like my gloves were like my batting gloves for baseball I was like <laughs> I just essentially wore like my baseball uniform to go skiing because <laughs> that's like all I had and I didn't know what I was doing and uh I remember like sliding around in the snow for the first time and just being like loving it and that was before I even like got into mountains or anything but I I just totally loved yeah moving around on the snow and so Gosh, uh, that led me out west. I spent a lot of time in a few years in Colorado. Moved up to Missoula, Montana. Did a lot of skiing up here in finishing my undergrad here, which was environmental studies. And shortly thereafter, moved up to Glacier National Park mm -hmm. and Whitefish, Montana, and started guiding, raft guiding, uh, backpacking guiding and weaseled my way quickly into a ski patrol job up there mm -hmm. and did that for a few years. So this is... I really know, my background's get I'm going already no, through everything. No, it's cool. Um, <laughs> but it's really interesting to me because what some of our listeners might not know is you're a little more known for trail running than skiing um, in the outdoor world, um, or at least that was my perspective right. and so it's really interesting to hear that skiing maybe came into it a little earlier than trail running as far as falling in love with mountains and wild places and bringing you out west and 
Yeah, absolutely. It was like my main form of recreation. And so, yeah, I, I run for the North Face as like a professional ultra runner, but I, yeah, running actually, so skiing was the catalyst for that and like playing in the mountains and doing big things in the mountains. And uh, it is funny, I, I, the pendulum has swung back and forth a couple of times because I did get way into ultra marathon running and uh, you know, that takes a lot of focus and I kind of stopped skiing for a few years mm-hmm. in order to focus direct, like I ski patrolled for four years and I was ski patrolling in Big Sky at Moonlight Basin and I actually quit that so that I could pursue running full time and uh, not financially full time, but more like I still had a job, but uh, just to be able to focus on the training full time and do it really well and not half ass it. And so uh in the last few years though, the pendulum swung back and I've realized how much, how important it is for me to still be playing in the snow, in the mountains, in the high country all winter long. I mean, we live in Western Montana and it's beautiful here and it feels very unnatural to try and just grind running all winter long. So I've kind of come back to it in the last few years and it's been a really good decision (laughs) and been a good thing for my soul. So that's cool. How did you first get into ultra running? Uh, maybe this is my own curiosity more than people who are, you know, signing on to listen to a backcountry podcast. But I'm just curious, like, what was your first race or, or who got you into it or why did yeah. you start trail running? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I... I mean, ever since I moved out west, I was interested in just getting outdoors a lot, whether it was backpacking or skiing in the winters, like on resort. Like I wasn't a backcountry skier at first and, or thought of myself as a backcountry skier and stayed in bounds cause I didn't know any better and, and nor did I have the gear for it. But, uh, I, I definitely spent a lot of time hiking and I got into running just as a way to stay fit actually. And I was doing like a lot of running just on roads early on. Cause I just, that was like an option and quickly, quickly transitioned into, oh, okay, like, now that I have this, like, I'm help, I'm fit enough to go do these things, like, suddenly all these things unlock, and all these objectives become a little bit more attainable, and you're like, oh, man, like, gosh, I bet I could get to that mountain and back in a day, or I could do this whole trail from point to point in a day, or all these things, and, and, and it just, it's funny, because I didn't think of myself as a runner at the time, I just had, like, these shiny objects that I wanted to chase down that necessitated running, Oh, I better go get my... We're going to take a pause. Is that all right? Yeah. We're going to put some <laughs> bread in the oven. Foot has been on a, a baking spree, he tells me. And uh, we got to throw, throw a loaf in. We also are accompanied today by... We also are accompanied today by Max the dog. So apologies for Max there. What kind of a loaf do we have going here, Foot? <laughs> I love you're still doing this. Uh, I have a very large, round, uh, kind of just a white and whole wheat loaf, something that is nice and airy crumb, something that's really good with, uh, you know, like olive oil and balsamic. And, and it still makes a decent sandwich bread. Uh, yeah, I've been baking like a big round loaf a week and I put in a big Dutch oven and get it going nice and hot. and. It has been a really, really cathartic and fun process. So. He's scoring it with like a little 
like razor blade right now. Um, yeah. Look at that. Yeah, it helps with the rise and uh -huh. getting some of the steam out. Sprinkle a little flour on top. Yeah. That looks delicious. Oh, it's going to be. So our interview is just going to smell better and better. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's actually the best part. I wanted to have this done before you got here, but we got sidetracked. <laughs> okay, um, it'll be ready in like 20... All right, in 20 minutes, we got to take the lid off, and then 25 minutes after that, we got to uh, get it out of the oven. Right. Okay, so... Wait, wait, wait. Talk to me a little more about your baking kick before we move on. <laughs> Uh, I've always enjoyed baking, and I just find it to be this really fun, like, I enjoy things and where there's a practice and you need to hone a craft, and there's, like, no ceiling. You can just always get better at it and better at it, and baking is like that because it is uh, a really fun mix of science and art. Like, there's science in baking. Like, you have to have really good ratios, and, you know, like, there's all these like right weights and the right amounts because otherwise if you don't have that foundation bad things happen but as you get good at it and you understand the science about it a little bit more you can start to add your own flair to it and uh yeah there's like this artisan side of it too which is really fun so it's it's, this, it's like fun mix and i just really like good bread <laughs> so for the last year the goal has been to like not buy a loaf of bread um and i i think i've bought a couple like loaves locally just get stuff just here and there but yeah, in general, I, do, I don't buy bread anymore, but I eat a lot of it. Nice. <laughs> so circling back, we were talking about kind of ultra running and how you got into ultra oh. running and um, how it was, you know, more about like these objectives or things you realized you were capable of doing. Really quick for our listeners, can you give us the 30 second description of what ultra running is? Yeah, ultra running is... Objectively, any running over a marathon distance, so anything longer than 26.2 miles. Uh, within that, there's, uh, you know, all ends of the spectrum. I think the most prestigious distance that a lot of people like to run is like a 100-mile uh, race. And, you know, ultra running can exist on roads, but, you know, in the context of probably our discussion, it's almost always trail running and mountain running. So uh, where ultra running probably has its largest community is usually in the mountain running world so not only are you going much further you're you're often doing it through these like big open wild places which is really fun so right. that's all running so we'll spend a little more time talking about running and then i'm really excited to transition to skiing and yeah. kind of some unique things that i see you doing combining your experience and your fitness from ultra running with the new lightweight ski gear yeah um, but before we go that far, I know that you, you know, have done really well in the ultra running world at like the ultra trail du Mont Blanc, um, the hard rock, the Bighorn 100, which you, you know, have won and set a course record. Um, are there any specific like memorable runs that really stick out to you as kind of pivotal or, um, particularly... I don't know. Yeah. A nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I mean, I think there's in the back of my mind of like dozens and dozens of fun adventure training runs. I, I mean, I will say that the I think I came into the sport not from I, I began racing and was doing well enough at it that it encouraged me to keep racing and be, take it more seriously. But I will say like 
I mean, the funnest part is the process of like, okay, I want to do this 100 mile race to be able to do this 100 mile race. I have to now go out and do these really fun runs in the mountains all the time. And so I think it's more just this kind of general process. That's really the best part about it is the training that it takes to be able to do well or to be able to even finish a 100 mile race involves lots of really fun days, oftentimes hard and challenging, but also fun and fulfilling of just being out there. But I will say, I mean, there's a few races that definitely were maybe turning points or, you know, things that definitely were catalysts for, for my running. And I, I think one of the first ones that comes to mind was doing the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. In 2011, uh, I went over there, uh, funded completely off of like t-shirt sales. Like I sold a bunch <laughs> of like team foot t-shirts, like, you know, like the friends in the community wanted to support me. And so we came up with this program, like, okay, we'll make these t-shirts. And it like, it was insane. Like I sold like 200 t-shirts, which is a lot. And they was able to pay for my flight over there to Europe. And I ended up sleeping on, uh, my friend Mike Wolf's floor at the time he was a North face sponsored athlete and he had a hotel room and I just crashed on his floor for the week. And so I like was able to pull off this huge trip to Europe and, uh, yeah, it was kind of like this unknown guy. And, you know, there was all these big names and a lot of the best U.S. mountain runners were over there that year. It was this really big, like, migration of U.S. top athletes going to race. And I ended up being the top American that year. And so uh, it garnered. Yeah. And so I had a good race and was like uh, the top male athlete that year. And so uh, from the U.S. and it all these things ended up transpiring. Like I got sponsorship and was like the North face reached out to me and all these things. And honestly it was, I got to see the sport at its highest level. I got to meet all these incredible world-class athletes that inspired me and, you know, folded me into their community more and got me more excited about the sport. And, uh, you know, had I not sold t-shirts to like make that happen, had I not taken like that risk, I don't know what would have, you know, happened after that. So it was a really, uh, eye-opening trip and also just it was pivotal like it changed your life you wouldn't be where you are today it sounds like yeah I definitely don't know if I would have like I you know I've in turn gotten support to be able to go to more races and do all these things and have all these other adventures and uh yeah again like meeting certain individuals and people along the way that have become lifelong friends and uh yeah my lifestyle very much at this point has been crafted out of that you know my running is a big part of my daily ritual and takes up a you know it's like a part-time job it's a hobby and I love it and I don't want to call it a job because it's not but it's it's a big chunk of my day you know most days of the week and uh it's great and I'm really thankful for it (laughs) I um it's cool to hear you say just like being surrounded by all these world-class athletes and how inspiring that was and I know you have been involved with helping create The Rut, which mm-hmm. is um, a now part of the Ultra Running World, Seer- well, Sky Running Sky World Running Series, World yep. series yep. Um, which takes place in Big Sky, Montana. And I remember I did that race a few years ago. And um, just that, for me, was the coolest part of the whole race, was mm-hmm. that you're surrounded by all these people yeah. that are super inspiring, amazing yeah. people, and you just get to like feed off of that energy yeah. and that community, and um, it was something that I hadn't really anticipated, and I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I really like hearing that. I That was the goal, and creating that race was 
bringing, you know, creating a, a challenging course and getting a lot of people to show up for it and, uh, you know, hopefully find some joy and value in the process, but then also having some of the world's best athletes there. I mean, we've had, uh, you know, a lot of the best mountain runners in the world at that, that event in the last few years. And it's, I mean, it's inspiring for me. It's really cool to see. And uh, I love seeing that vision come to fruition. It's a really, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that it's turned into what it's turned into. <laughs> I hope it continues. Right. So kind of one of the final running things I wanted to talk to you about is a really cool project that you did. I guess it was two years ago now. Yeah, the, a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah. The Crown Traverse. Mm-hmm. which for those who aren't familiar was a 500 600 mile yeah 600 miles from Missoula Montana to Banff correct <laughs> <laughs> which most people would call crazy yeah um, so <laughs> I would too <laughs> I mean that trip to me it seems like an obviously cool thing to try to do but <laughs> how did the idea come about and you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the process of like choosing the route. Yeah, yeah. So the Crown Traverse ended up being a 600 mile route from where we're sitting right here at my house here in Missoula is where I started the trip right at the front door and ended in Banff. And the idea was that it was crossing this this region known as the Crown of the Continent, which is this contiguous, you know, almost completely uh, public lands, you know, national parks, wilderness areas all, uh, put together, uh, all the way north to Banff. So the idea is there's not much between here and Banff other than just wild places, Glacier National Park, uh, all sorts of different things. And so between the, oh, and the 600 miles, we crossed three roads, like three <laughs> paved roads. Cool. And that, and that we got on trail two blocks from here, from the house. So it's, it's pretty crazy to be in this, you know, big Montana city of 75,000 people. And, within a mile, like we're heading north to Banff and we're not seeing much the entire time. And we wanted to do it in a, a kind of Alpine style where we were often off trail, just following ridgelines north. And we were able to really achieve that. And so, uh, it was, it was an incredible experience. And yeah, so the way that it all came to fruition was, uh, a North Face teammate of mine and a, just a good friend, Mike Wolf and I have always been wanting to do a big trip. And at one point we talked about just running across Montana and at other times we've talked about crazy other expeditions and, you know, Asia and all these other places. But, you know, the more we thought about it, like nobody's ever really done this and it's our backyard and we have this amazing connection with it and we've spent significant amount of time in it, but never linked it all together like that. And there was a lot of places, especially on the Northern half of the trip in Canada that we had never even seen or experienced. And so, uh, we had been like bouncing around a few ideas and then I met a guy named Stephen Nam who's a really incredible photographer and athlete in his own right and I showed up at a book signing he was doing here in Missoula and it was called uh, the book was called The Wildest Rockies The Crown of the Continent an amazing beautiful coffee table photography book of yeah wildlife. highly and, recommended yeah it's and just great essays and uh, it was all about the crown of the continent and I, he was giving this slideshow at this book signing and, uh, the crown of the continent map popped up on the, and which I've seen before. And it's like, I knew what it was, uh, popped up on the screen and it like showed Missoula at the Southern tip and showed Banff at the Northern tip. And I was like, huh, I'd really like to go from, you know, 
here to there. Here to there someday. And Steve and I, I, met, I introduced myself to Steve in that evening. We went for a run that night. And by the end of the first run, we like, we should run from here to Banff. <laughs> it just like clicked. And I called Mike and he was on board. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it all just really fell. It, it felt, it felt really natural. It wasn't this contrived expedition. We should go do something cool. It was like, it, I almost said it chose us, but that sounds really corny. <laughs> but <laughs> it's essentially, it's, it's just that it's, it's exciting to explore your own backyard when it's this backyard. And there was a lot of places I wanted to see. And it just felt so much more right than flying halfway across the world to see something cool. Um, and by doing that, I feel like it deepened my connection to the, an area that I already love. So it had all these like silver lining benefits to it that really appealed to me. And frankly, a lot of people forget about how amazing our little corner of the world is. And I'm okay with that, but I also, I don't forget it. So I want to continue to explore it. I'm, uh, I was really happy to kind of start to put the pieces together to make it happen. When we did it, it was definitely everything that I expected and a lot more stuff that I didn't expect, but mm -hmm. what was the most unexpected moment? Hmm. Oh, that's tricky. Moments are so hard because there's so many, uh, this is going to sound weird, but the most unexpected part was <laughs> that things actually went as planned. Uh, <laughs> I can so, understand so that. like you plan things knowing that there's going to be, you're going to be at plan, like, you know, whatever R by the time that, you know, you get halfway from here to there. And, uh, I remember like we romanticized it heavily. We're like, Oh yeah, we'll just run from Missoula to Banff. We'll like just take high ridge lines going North. And like, we didn't classically, I mean, if people who know me well know I'm not the best planner and like, we didn't really plan that well. We were like, Oh, we'll just figure it out as we go. Like we had like a general idea of the route, but every day it was like not really knowing if certain things would go, but bit by bit by bit. I mean, we would like run an entire mountain range and then you know, like that ridge line would like kind of start drooping off down into the valley. So we dropped down the valley up to another mountain range and head north along that ridge line. And like we were linking mountain ranges up via ridge line that and mountain ranges that went north. And we just bit by bit by bit started doing it. And I remember it was like day 14 and we were. 60 miles north of the Canadian border already, like 350 miles into the trip. And I, I just stopped and I was like, oh, this is actually happening. Like it started to feel for the first time, like, okay, we're going to make it. Uh, like we're, we're past the halfway point. Like I was pretty confident, like I was not going to turn around no matter what, but you never know. And like to feel like, okay, here, this is actually happening and we're doing this and it's actually kind of happening like we thought it would. Like I tend to romanticize things and like the reality is so far from what I had like originally thought. Um, and this was not actually the case. Like, I mean, we were in the Alpine class three, class four, scrambling so much, piecing it together. I mean, all sorts of fun terrain and group dynamics were working out. I mean, there's, you spend 23 days with anybody making decisions all the time and it's really challenging, but, uh, everybody had a lot of respect for each other into the trip and that was really important for group decision making and uh so the the tension the social tension wasn't as high as other group trips I've been on <laughs> and I really think that that was probably what helped us get all the way to the finish line you know yeah. of the trip itself so yeah that's cool I I can actually sort of relate I've never done anything that big but we did a big run 
five days, 140 miles last year. And I remember on day That's four, big. <laughs> waking up, being like, nothing's gone wrong yet. Like, this is working. And yeah. that was the, the most surprising part was that you didn't, I, we didn't have to fall onto any plan C's or D's or E's or F's. Like, right. plan A actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, whoa. <laughs> I think it comes down to the people. Like, I think planning's important. There's all sorts of things, but... I think I think when it comes down to trips, I mean, honestly, there's a few things I care more about than group dynamics and and who the people are. Like, if if somebody's a quality individual on there, they like have a high tolerance to adversity and they like show respect to you and to themselves. Like, those are the ingredients that are so necessary for a trip. And I think everything else will fall into place. I truly believe that, and I've experienced like both ends of that spectrum. And I'd say the controversy was very much, you know, that end of the spectrum where. We had we had a really solid team, and it it showed. I mean, we like. I think oftentimes. You meet the same amount of adversity on a trip, you know, whether it's weather or terrain or whatever. But it's really like the strength and cohesiveness of the group that, like, you know, that's going to expose weaknesses in a weaker group or weaker individuals or, or folks that, you know, I mean, or if you just aren't, don't have the right chemistry, even. Right. So, yeah, I think that was probably the best part. Ah, cool. Thanks for sharing all that. That's awesome. Max, the dog, is snoring lightly in the background. It's really cute. Oh my gosh, he's so vocal. Even uh, asleep. <laughs> um, so let's transition a little bit into schemo. Yeah, oh yeah, this um, is a skiing podcast. Yeah, this is a skiing <laughs> podcast. And I think we need to start by laying the ground on what schemo is. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I think not a lot of people know what schemo is. And yeah. I'm really excited with this podcast to explore all spectrums of backcountry skiing yeah. from the super light schemo that we're now going to talk about yeah. all the way to like more free ride. Yeah. Um, so do you mind explaining? Yeah, schemo? no, I'm happy to. I think <laughs> so. Schemo is short for ski mountaineer racing. Uh, and it's also can be called rondonet racing. There's a lot of different names for it out there right now people are within the community i think there's a lot of people trying to still figure out what to call it essentially it's a, a you know really large growing or growing quickly growing section of backcountry skiing right now and the ski industry in the u.s is gaining a lot of traction but it's a sport that's been around for almost a century in western europe um it was it's essentially uh backcountry skiing skill sets put into a race setting. So uh, I guess a, a good example would just be at a race. Like you have a handful of climbs, a handful of descents. Oftentimes it is put onto, you know, the most extreme terrain that a ski area can find. Often it's in or around a ski area uh, just because that's good infrastructure and, you know, involves a couple thousand meters of climbing, like 6,000 feet of climbing and descending. And the whole idea is for you to move as efficiently as you can through that course by using the multiple skill sets necessary in what would be backcountry skiing, uh, skinning uphill, transitioning at the top of the hill, having, being really good at skiing downhill in order, cause that's part of the race too, getting to the bottom, putting your skis back on your, or, uh, you know, putting your skins back on your skis, skiing up, getting to a steep couloir or shoot, putting those skis on your backpack hiking up a chute, putting your skis back on. So it's, it's this, uh, to me, it's like the sexiest sport because it's all about efficient movement and complex terrain. And I think that to me is what drew me to trail running initially and now ski mountaineer racing. And so, 
uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. And there's, uh, it's a very gear specific sport and they often, you know, people have very lightweight gear for it. And, uh, yeah, it's gaining a lot of traction in the U S events are popping up all the time. The community's growing and it's a really neat way to get good at the things necessary to spend time in the mountains in the winter. Right. So how did you first get into it or start or when did you start yeah um so i was aware of it for a few years so i ski patrolled up in whitefish montana at whitefish mountain resort and uh i had a few friends there who were uh way into it um and i was you know ski patrolling i would like help set up the races but i was like not interested in partaking in them at all and at the time i was even running but i was just like that looks miserable. Like I enjoy backcountry skiing. Like I don't need to turn this into a like really intense sport. <laughs> and, like, and, and I like really admired my friends who were doing it at the time. Uh, they were, you know, getting into it at a level that they were, uh, you know, making the U S ski team, ski mountaineering team and doing these things. So they were really passionate about and committed to it. So, and I, I just loved watching them from afar, but I wasn't necessarily interested in, in doing it myself but you know over time I am the kind of person who's just curious and wants to try things and I think I like jumped into a race with like a really heavy setup once and um just suffered my way through and I was like that was amazing (laughs) 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 and I'm also just I I find I think efficiency is like so cool like I like I just crave efficiency I love working on it I like honing skills uh and this sport has this laundry list of skills that you can get good at, like all the different transitions, all the different techniques. And, you know, I love the simplicity of trail running, but I also geek out on the complexities of ski mountaineer racing and this, like the, the much larger skill set you need to do well at it. So it was only a matter of time. Uh, just a few years ago, I started to get, like, I finally bought like a ski set, a ski race setup that was like more race specific. And yeah, I've been like dinking away at it since. Can you talk to us for a minute about your setup? Like, yeah. what is your setup? How long are the skis? How fat are the skis? How much do they weigh? Yeah. Boots, same thing. Yeah. Feel, What's your kit? Feel free to glaze over this if you don't care at all about <laughs> <laughs> uh, grams and carbon fiber and all the above. Uh, yeah, it's funny. So I have all of the fancy pants stuff now because I've been really committed to it the last few years, and it's you know it's uh, it's a gear specific or gear definitely makes a difference. So uh, essentially, let's see here. Where will I start? I guess the skis. So. The skis are small, and that's another thing you got to learn is to ski really well on really small skis. So the a men's ski, and they're all about the same. So free ride skiing is different because there's all these different shapes and styles and lengths and weights of skis. But when it comes to ski mountaineer racing, like every brand pretty much has the exact same ski when it comes to like uh, you know shape and weight and length. So it's about 161 centimeters for a men's ski. It has a 65 millimeter waist. Your tip and tail are usually like 90 or 80 centimeter or millimeters. And uh, they weigh, you know, about 700 grams, which is to say really, really, really light. And you can take a bread break. <laughs> All right, I gotta take the, the lid off of the loaf of bread. That's okay. We're, the bread break is, is for you listeners too. You can take a deep breath. 
whatever you're doing. Driving is usually when I listen to podcasts. Oh, that's looking good. All right. So now this is going to brown on the top. <laughs> uh, oh, i got to start the timer. I just, like, so. follow you to the kitchen. <laughs> okay. So the skis are, yeah, and they're just, they're crazy lightweight. And so that's the ski. Uh, really small, skinny, and short, and lightweight, which is tricky at times. The, bind, the binding is essentially like a staple and a, like, <laughs> like stapling sa- your boots like safety to your pin. <laughs> like it's it's this like I mean they have them now where they're like a hundred grams, which is a couple ounces. Like I mean that's like a three three and a half ounce binding, which holds you in at insanely high speeds and really steep gnarly terrain which is crazy so it's a tech binding so like any like a dina fit binding you would think of and uh yeah the toe piece is just a really lightweight small piece of metal there's no frills and the back is essentially just the two little pins that would click into your heel and a little metal flap that sits over them you don't need risers you don't need to be able to twist it you don't need to do anything because the boot so moving on to the boot is has an insanely like large uh, ability to flex forward and back. So when it's in its walk mode, unlike a lot of backcountry boots that like kind of squeak forward and back like a couple degrees, uh, they have like full range of motion. So uh, you don't need a riser to make up for that lack of range of motion. So the boot itself just feels like it's free. Like, I mean, you can run in these boots. You can s- literally run in these boots. And a lightweight carbon fiber, super fancy ski boot is, uh, they're like 510 grams, which again is like nothing. I mean, you're looking, that's the equivalent of a lightweight hiking boot or a really heavy running shoe uh, or like a heavy running shoe. I mean, it's, again, you can run in these things. And then which is crazy going up, and then the fact that they're stiff enough because they're carbon fiber to actually drive that lightweight ski through really gnarly terrain. I mean, whether it's steep tree skiing or down a rocky chute or whatever, I mean, they they all work because they're all lightweight. Like, you can't use that lightweight boot to drive a really heavy ski, um, but you can these lightweight race skis. So uh, that's that's kind of the, the kit, and then you just have to wear a really dorky one-piece spandex suit. <laughs> because that's what everybody does and it makes sense and spandex feels so good (laughs) one of my questions was going to be to ask you what's it feel like to wear a speed suit oh my gosh i've never worn one i feel so fast Uh, once you go spandex you'll never go back my friends make fun of me because like i'll have no reason to wear my spandex suit (laughs) and I just want to because it's the best tool for the job even for backcountry skiing i mean like on a nice spring day it's so nice it's like I, I run a lot, and on a cold spring day, I wear spandex leggings because it's cold out. I'm like, why would I wear some heavy Gore-Tex bibs when I can just wear my breathable <laughs> spandex suit? But I get made fun of all the time for it, and I deserve that. But uh, yeah, and so you have to carry. I think it's really important to. A lot of these races, especially in Europe, do exist in the backcountry. I mean, if the avalanche danger is high, then the races won't exist, uh, or I mean, they're, they're postponed, or the course changes, or whatever. But you have to have a backpack. You need to have uh, a full avalanche kit. So Beacon Shovel and Pro, and uh, that's a really important part of it. Now, do in, people wear the Beacons, 
or do they put them in their backpacks? So you have to have it on your person. Uh-huh. Uh, usually all these skin suits have like a pocket for it mm-hmm. and you can put it on. It has to be, you know, you have to have it on and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that's a, that's a big part of it. In the United States, I think there's a lot of races where that's like the whole race is on the, on the ski area and like you're encouraged to bring it, but you're not mandated because there is a lot of, as the participation grows, there's a lot of hurdles. I mean, to get all the gear, to have your avalanche beacon, even though you may only be doing uphill skinning on a resort, so you don't even own a beacon. And so there's, it's a little bit different in the United States. The culture's younger, and I think it's important to not mandate all that just yet, just because it's important to get people into the sport and to learn about it and have the opportunity to go do these races without investing $10,000 in gear. And so, yeah. yeah. And most races you have to wear a helmet too, right? Correct. Yeah. You definitely yeah. need to wear a helmet. Interesting. Yeah. It's super, it's very niche, but, um, it is the thing that yeah. I just want yeah, people is. to understand though, is that to just try a race, you don't have to have all the lightweight stuff. Heck no. No. I mean, I put on a ski series here in Missoula at just the local ski hill, Snowball, and we get 80 people out on a Thursday night. We did it for like four or five weeks. We did it for four weeks this year, and uh, it was great. I mean, it's a fun community event. You go out and you skin around. You're active. It's actually really fun, and it's fun to do it with people, and like you have like a boot pack, and you ski down, and at the end of the time, night, you have some beers with friends. I mean, there's there's all levels to it, and like I don't mandate any gear, I mean, for this race that I put on. Obviously, you need, uh, well, you need to have skis and skins or like a split board to be able to do it but outside of that you didn't need anything so there's all sorts of levels i mean uh i'm yeah i want to be clear about that because i i'm a huge proponent of this sport right now i'm loving it and i want to see more people get into it i'd love mm-hmm. to see it grow because uh, i think it's a really fun way to get out in the winter and i think as uphill traffic and uphill policies become more prevalent on ski areas i think that's a good gateway into getting Learning a to backcountry ski because it learn, teaches you how to use your gear before going out into a, like an avalanche area, and then b it definitely promotes uh, people getting used to it in order to maybe jump into a race or two if they think it looks and sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, backcountry skiing as a whole is only going to continue to grow as long as it keeps snowing, and schemo races and things are only going to continue to grow and. I think more and more ski areas will allow yeah. uphill traffic in the future, yeah. and um, it may take some longer than others to come around to that, but, you know, it, it, it's so big in Europe, and yeah. most things yeah. trickle this way, um, Yeah, and it's and just, yeah. I think the gear has helped, too. I, I, I'm not even speaking specifically to ski mountaineer racing anymore. I think that there's this niche within skiing that is, like parts of the ski industry are hurting however lightweight ski touring is a huge booming section of ski so and i think that's fueled a little bit by ski mountaineer racing i think it's fueled a little bit by by opportunities to do uphill policies at ski areas and i think that's kind of the convergence is actually somewhere that that sweet spot of like there's a lot of people who are just looking to get out and the gear has gotten so good and so ubiquitous now and it's becoming more affordable to get a lightweight ski touring kit that can do most anything you want to do. Maybe jump into a ski race, but most of the time you're either skinning uphill or going out backcountry skiing on the weekends. You know, I think the options and opportunities to do it now aren't, there's not as many hurdles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, the more people that, especially are out 
maybe in your favorite backcountry ski zone that changes it (laughs) but um, in general it's cool to see uh, a lot of people who love doing that right um so one thing that I really enjoyed watching with you and your skiing this year is kind of combining your experience and your fitness from ultra running with Schemo and you had the opportunity to go to Worlds. So maybe you could explain a little bit about what Worlds is, where it is, and um, how you ended up going there and what that experience was like. Yeah, so uh, this last December I qualified, so for the last few years it's been like a goal of mine to get better at the sport to the point where I can make the U.S. Ski Mountaineering team which would then offer me the opportunity to go to this, the World Championships, which is held somewhere usually in Western Europe uh, every other year. And this was a World Championship year or World's year. And so I qualified at a race down in Idaho in December, uh, which I didn't know I could do. So that was really exciting. Like I, It was like a pretty big long shot in my mind, just having only been in the sport for a few years. And I've definitely seen improvement, but I didn't know if I'd be where I needed to be this year to be able to do it, but I, I, I was able to. And so, uh, yeah, it, the world championships is a 10 day event. It was held in the Dolomites in Italy this year, which was really incredible. And essentially there's teams from 40 or so different countries that show up and partake in this. And it's a, a 10 day event because it has all these different disciplines. You can do the, uh, you know, the main race, the individual race, which is a lot similar to the courses I was talking about earlier. But then there's also like a technical teams race, which is a little bit longer and uses more, uh, has like fixed lines. You need to wear a harness and, uh, you know, you're on like really exposed ridges. And so there's, there's a, a more technical aspect to it. And then there's like a hill climb race, like a vertical race or a sprint race, which, which is like three minutes of needing to use all the different skill set. It's like a mini course. Like it has like, you like run up, you like skin uphill, throw your skis on your back, boot pack a little bit, skin a little bit more, do some switchbacks, rip your skins down, ski through gates. And like that's the whole, and it happens in like three minutes like that. And it's miserable because <laughs> it's really, really hard. But uh, yeah, so like, I mean, each day was a different event and it was a really amazing experience for me. A, I got to see the sport at the highest level. I mean, in Western Europe, it's uh, Spain, Austria, France, Italy, I mean, they take it so seriously. I mean, a lot of their athletes are like uh, military athletes, so they're funded through military, but their full-time job is to be a ski mountaineering athlete or something like that. So they, it's it's very much, and they have like, it's very well developed in that they have, very, they have teams, they have coaches, they, like the U.S. is like ragtag when we go over there because we're all just like these individuals doing our thing and we show up and you know, in, in like uh, France, Italy, Spain, I mean, they have youth developmental programs. I mean, there's lots of, if you live in a mountain town in one of these countries, you could join the club team for like, and then work your way up onto the U- like the nation's team. So it's a very well organized sport and therefore it's very competitive and very deep at the highest level. And it was really actually great to see that. I mean, it was, it was, it was cool to see where the sport is currently over there and where it could go in the U S maybe someday. And, uh, yeah, I actually really like that. So we, uh, yeah, we had a group of, a large group of guys and gals that went over and, and participated. And 
we ended up sixth overall as a country, which was like by far the best the United States has ever done, which is a testament to it actually is growing over here and we're starting to pay a little bit more attention. And uh, it was cool because a lot of the folks over there want to see the U.S. succeed as like this big country that I thought they were just going to, I don't know, poo-poo us the whole time. And I don't know why, but everybody was so welcoming and, and warm and like really complimentary and encouraging. And I think... Uh, I think like the Spanish team like invited us over to their like training camp next November and, and we made a lot of friends which was also really cool and I've I've been to a lot of international uh, trail running races but never anything like this where you have teams from dozens of countries all staying in one hotel and you like go down to the cafeteria and there's the Spanish table like I mean they have like cards on the table it's like this is where the USA sits this is where Russia sits this is where Japan sits and it was what was cool was just seeing like man everybody's here and like I I never had that type of interaction in an international race and uh, yeah I, I mean I could go a million different directions with it but it was uh if anything, it was encouraging. It was eye-opening mm-hmm. because we all got our butts kicked to a certain degree. I mean, you know, I yeah, I'm not gonna lie. It's a it's another level over there, and it's but it's fun. I mean, I think I find it to be inspiring. Like I, I like getting my ass kicked because it makes me want something more usually. <laughs> and so, as long as I have that mentality, it's okay. Right. Oh, that's great. Well, maybe let's pivot a little bit and. Um... You have mentioned a couple times ski patrolling mm. at Whitefish and at Moonlight Basin, which is no longer, but part <laughs> of Big Sky, Montana. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about, like, maybe ski patrolling a little bit, but maybe also, like, what kind of avalanche training you have and yeah. just, like, what you're current like when you just go out for a fun day in yeah. the backcountry like is it more for fitness now is it exploratory yeah. i don't know this maybe you could comment on some of that a little bit yeah gosh oh man <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i skipped trolled for three or four years and it was like the, it was the best job i ever had I, I mentioned to you earlier it felt like being james bond and you're like <laughs> skiing all this like crazy stuff and you're throwing bombs in the morning and like the deal with helicopters when you're doing like these medical evacuations and uh it just was a really exciting and like you're part of this cool team and yeah you get to ski powder i mean it was like it was like a dream job and i i to this day would love to retire back into ski patrolling because <laughs> i found it to be such a great great job uh yeah I, the only reason i walked away from it was to run more and who knows but uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I actually did, I got way into the snow safety aspect of it really quick. Like I just found doing that. I, I just gravitated, I enjoyed the medical side of it, but I really gravitated towards the snow safety aspects of it, doing avalanche control work and, uh, you know, going and doing, you know, uh, hand routes with bombs and, you know, making sure places were safe and clear and ready for the public. And I mean, it's a really high pressure job actually for getting paid, you know, $8 an hour. And, uh, it's, it was, it just appealed to me immediately. So I, I wanted to learn a lot more. So I took a, I had taken a level one avalanche course and I took a level two pretty quickly there after, uh, beginning ski patrol and, you know, had that under my belt for a year and 
was all, at the same time doing a lot of backcountry skiing on the weekends so that I could, you know, practice being a recreational leader and terrain management and all these things because I wanted to work up to being an avalanche route leader. And you just takes it takes time because it's high consequence and you need to know the terrain really well. So I wanted to build my skill sets more. And, you know, that's a fun process in and of itself. So I loved it. And I ended up taking an AvPro, which is kind of a lesser known class. It's essentially a nine or 10 day uh, avalanche class focused towards like operational stuff. So ski patrollers, Department of Transportation workers, uh, you know, that kind of group of people. And I really enjoyed that actually and found a lot of value in that and brought that back to my patrolling and started leading a lot of avalanche uh, just training in, in the program. And yeah, bit by bit, I was working my way up to it and just, I, yeah, I, I love skiing and I could just ski powder all day and love it. But I like all, I really enjoyed the mental aspect of snow safety and, and, you know, and being a avid backcountry user and wanting to be as, you know, knowledgeable and experienced as I could. And I've heard a couple other people say this, I do agree. And inbounds versus out of bounds setting is very different. I get that, but I don't think there's a better job in the world to get you better, get you more used to snow than being a ski patroller. Cause you're just forced into it, you know, five days a week to obviously if there's a, you know, middle of a storm cycle, you're, if you're the first ones out there, sometimes it is like being in a backcountry setting and getting to test it all the time. You get this like really good feedback because by throwing bombs and ski cutting and doing all these things, you, you get this feedback and it just builds your knowledge base. And I really appreciated that. And yeah, so I, 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 I sadly walked away from that and now just run around in spandex. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do no I I, uh, I backcountry ski quite a bit still uh, I will say this year was an interesting year I was pretty focused on training and fitness and I found myself on on, on area a lot just trying to get stuff done and uh, had a close friend pass away in an avalanche Ben Parsons who was one of my well A a good friend and then B also one of, like he was like a mentor to me in ski mountaineer racing and uh, so that just, he, he died in Avalanche and Glacier National Park in January. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, it's interesting. I, for whatever reason, I just got, I wouldn't say gun shy, but I just needed to, for whatever reason, not spend much time in the backcountry for a couple of months. And I just needed to be okay with being on, on peace and hanging out like that. And everybody reacts to it differently, but I just... Uh, I needed that to just back away a little bit. And so that was, that was another part of my, my, my winter, which was a big part of my winter. And, uh, yeah, just lent itself to not, not doing as much this year. Um, but in the last month I've actually gotten out quite a bit and really enjoyed some big spring tours with friends and, uh, without as much of a training focus and, you know, poking back into the mountains that I like love in a, like, I mean, it, like the spring season is like the best season in a lot of ways because you can just go huge on these like big sunny days and uh, I've been trying to get out and do that a lot lately which has been really nourishing yeah yeah what would you say kind of your goals for the future with regard to skiing are I guess I'm curious yeah if you're gonna be focused on racing for a little while or if perhaps you're going to be using 
kind of the skills of racing to right. do things more like the crown traverse. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I kind of want to do it all. So I'm enjoying the racing aspect, and uh, I, I definitely want to keep doing that, you know, off and on for the next for, for the next few years. But I'm not, I think, I think the beauty of it is I think you can do both. I think you can maybe not commit to every race in a whole calendar because that will lock you into one thing and not the other. Uh, but I, I think there's this really fun balance of like having these big race goals, which gets you very fit and efficient at that travel. And then maybe you get through them earlier in the season and the tail end of the season in the spring, you suddenly have all this fitness that's carrying over and the upper, you know, the Alpines like really turn it into some great travel. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a few things that are on my mind that I would love to do. I mean, there's like the bugaboos to Rogers traverse. Uh, there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's a million traverses that nobody's ever done. And then there's like a lot of really well-known ones that would be fun to either just do or do fast. Or, I mean, like I've definitely, uh, made some great ski partners through the sport as well that have similar objectives. I think there's very much people whom are incredible ski mountaineer athletes but don't have the backcountry knowledge or being in the big mountains which is it's like akin to being a snowmobiler right where you can just like put your finger on a your thumb on a uh, throttle and end up in some really scary places really quick that's the same thing with like really fit ski mountaineer athletes who don't have as much of like a snow safety background and uh, luckily, I mean, it's, some of them don't even really spend much time in the backcountry and just train on resort, and that's fine. But then I, there's definitely a few of us who have more of that backcountry skiing background, and and also have that like desire for some really big traverses and things like that. So we've we've thrown a few ideas out there, and yeah, I mean, the like going back to the Crown Traverse, I mean, that was probably like one of the most fun and fulfilling adventures of my life. So I am not the kind of person who's a 100% racer. Like I kind of do in a few years who knows maybe i'll only do adventures and i'll be done with like race settings but right now i still want both and i think there's room for both as long as you're not overdoing it and that's a balance too i, I like a lot of people i struggle with that i'm like oh yeah i can totally do these like seven races and then go do this huge adventure and then i'll be fine and i'll start running and i won't be tired and it'll be great and it never happens that way <laughs> but it's good i mean i'm excited it's just that there's there's a lot of things to do so yeah yeah <laughs> some good good thoughts there but i will say if if any i mean anybody's listening if you want to get good at being efficient in the backcountry and if you have like i mean how many times have we gone out and had like these big goals only to not be able to do it because we spent way too much time like transitioning or whatever and i mean if you want to do a few races and just get used to what it means to do a quick transition and be efficient you can open yourself up to you don't even have to be necessarily that much more fit you know you can just i think it's that's one of the coolest aspects of it is when you can transfer those skills back to a backcountry setting it's it's amazing the places you can go and how quickly you can get there and what you can do mm -hmm. in a short period of time in my experience the more efficient you are and the more fit you are mm -hmm. the more you can look around and enjoy what you're doing yeah I totally agree. And that is something I really enjoy about backcountry skiing. Um, I wanted to, again, pivot a little bit 
to something that I know has been on your mind as sort of an influencer and an athlete, um, and that is kind of, well, and you mentioned before we, we sat down that you've been really thinking about and working on kind of the public lands battle <laughs> that we're all concerned about right, right now. So maybe you could talk a little bit about like what's been on your mind specifically and what you've been doing. Yeah, I just, I feel, well, I've been doing, there's been a lot on my mind. (laughs) Uh, I mean, just like two days ago, there's been an executive order from the president to review like any national monument that's been created in the last 20 years. And that's really scary. And, you know, right before... Earlier this afternoon, I was writing a letter to Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke, who used to be a congressman here in Montana, who's from Whitefish, who like grew up at the doorstep of Glacier National Park. So I'm I'm writing a very positive letter to him right now about how much I believe in him to make the right choices about these things because he understands the value of public lands and federal public lands that are open to everybody, and he. He gets it, I think. I mean, he, he claims to be like a Teddy Roosevelt Republican. And Teddy Roosevelt was the guy who created the Antiquities Act, which allows presidents to create national monuments. And he also, before being tapped as the Secretary of Interior, locally in Montana, was speaking to his constituency, which is to say public lands are very important to all of us. And he knew that. And he said, I would never transfer public lands, federal lands to state hands or to private interests. His voting record is very different, though, and it scares me. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, the bread is done. <laughs> uh, so anyways, that's, I guess, taking a step back. <laughs> Here, let's see how the bread turned out. It should be oh, nice and golden by now. Oh, yeah, it is perfect. beautifully golden. It's going to be like crackling as the crust cools. <laughs> That's so pretty. Now I can see why you scored it with the... uh... (laughs) So it's got to come out of the Dutch oven right away? Yeah, because you need it to cool with like like a rack underneath it. Right. Yeah, there we go. Okay. That is a beautiful loaf. We're done. Okay. Back to public lands. (laughs) (laughs) Baking in public lands, the two things I'm quite passionate about these days. Uh, yeah, so I guess backing up, I, uh, I mean, it's, as it's, bec- I've, I've always appreciated public lands and I think it's been something I've, I've always supported like local, uh, organizations that do a lot for creating open spaces in Missoula and Montana and, uh, you know, uh, friends of groups of like Glacier National Park. And I've always like donated when I can to those places because I really appreciate what they do. But in the last year or so. Obviously, the public lands debate has elevated quite a bit, and so I just think it's important to think about the greater, the thing that's greater than you. I mean, I I, I always think about what it would be like if we didn't have, you know, our favorite open space right out our door that a lot of us have, or that we like to go on vacation to, or all these things, and I mean, I wouldn't be the person I am today. Like, my character, like, I wouldn't be who I am today without open spaces, and so uh, I'm... I'm working to educate myself more um, because I'm not the type of person to just say really inflammatory things. Like I, I disagree with a lot of people on like, I, but I, I refuse to like just stand up for something even if I don't know much about it. So I try and educate myself on it 
quite a bit before I start to share an opinion on things. And public lands are, in my mind, apolitical. I really believe that. I'm like, they're our common ground. And it's just, there's so much value in them in public health and community health and all of these things. But at the same time, I mean, gosh, are they political now? It's crazy. I mean, these debates. And so for me, I just go back to celebrating them and getting people to understand like maybe the history of a place or certain threats that, you know, could be perceived or certain things that could be perceived as threats for a place that they love. And Hey, here's ways that you can get involved. And I just find that I'm writing a lot of emails and letters, or I guess I'm not writing many letters. I'm writing a lot of emails, making a few phone calls, uh, at the state level, but also at the federal level. And, uh, I just think it's, it's really rewarding to, I mean, like we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like, I mean, there's so many people that did all this great work for us before and we're reaping the benefits of it. And we're all so lucky and we're also like just rich and in, in our ability to like take advantage of public lands, but that's part of like our U S heritage now. And so to see things potentially rolling back in that regard is really scary to me. And I just, uh, yeah, I've just in the trail running scene, uh, in the trail running world, also in the skiing world, like, I mean, I'm talking to a lot of people about how we can, you know, get the word out about it a little bit more and be involved. And I really think being involved at your local level is great. I mean, there's so many ways to like do great things in your town. I mean, while writing federal representatives about bigger issues, like I, joined uh, the board of a local land trust here in Missoula, Five Valleys Land Trust. And they do like a lot of the best open spaces right out of town have been protected because of the work that they do. And now I'm directly involved in that because I appreciate the legacy of what people have done before me. And I really hope that I can pass that along and do great things as well, or be a part of these great efforts, a small part if anything, but, uh, and there's, there's so much more to <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could go a lot of different directions with the public lands things. I think it's, the, I think that for me, it just comes down to like, there's so much value in it and we all use these resources and we take advantage of it and at no cost to us a lot of times. And it's really easy to just go use it and then just walk away from it. And I think it's more important for me. I have a better relationship with it if I can have some sort of involvement in something that makes me feel better about being a user of open spaces and having a certain ethic with it. I mean, I think it's, I think land stewardship is really important. I mean, there's all these different things that oftentimes I feel like aren't being discussed in a lot of recreation communities. And I think recreators are often turn can turn into conservationists as well, but a lot of times they're not. And so for me lately, I've, and I'm not a huge evangelist. I don't, I don't talk about it too much publicly, but I, I'm trying to like lead by example and do things in my own life that, you know, as opposed to just getting on social media and telling everybody to do it, which I do sometimes. Right. <laughs> I, I'm trying to do like tangible stuff around here. Right. So anyways, yeah, that's my, yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about it? <laughs> Can I ask you? <laughs> well, I was sort of two things were coming to mind as you were saying that I was chatting with someone else um, that I was on a trip with a few weeks ago and they said you know we skiers and like runners we're so freaking lucky because we just get to use these lands completely for free <laughs> whereas like hunters and anglers yeah. pay yeah. to use public lands if you want to go hunt you have to you know get up 
a license or a permit. And there's an excise tax. Fishing. Yeah. And we pay nothing. Yeah, exactly. To use all these lands. And, you know, some people are probably going to be mad at me for saying this, but maybe we should have to pay something. Yeah. Because, you know, somebody's got to pony up and take care of it. And, you know, that could be the government, that could be the community, that could be multiple communities. But, you know, I think. I think just sometimes we take for granted. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, we're, we're, I mean, it's interesting you brought that up because I'm currently writing a piece for a magazine about this specifically, Mm. uh, about, uh, essentially trail runners, but skiers too. Now, I mean, if you want to talk about it, are freeloading off the backs of other recreation groups that are having to do a lot of work because they encounter so much more red tape right? and they have so much more threats to their recreation and access. So therefore they have to mobilize to be able to do good things. Yeah. I mean, hunters and anglers have an excise tax. I mean, you buy a bullet, you buy a fishing license, a, you get taxed on that. And that money goes towards public lands, have like wildlife habitat, public lands access. I mean, it gets directly benefited mm-hmm. towards those things. And so, or, and how Allocated it really towards be those to have a teeny tiny <laughs> like say two dollars from right. every pair of skis you buy goes to public lands and you know i'm I, i'd yeah. pay it <laughs> well i would too and I, yeah i would i i think it's just i think the greater discussion is like okay how can we step up as a community you know yeah. is it through attacks is it through you know these other these other avenues i mean hunters and anglers hundreds of years ago were probably a lot like a lot of like now have they're like the gold standard of conservationists because they've had to be because they've had so much regulation and so right. much and but now i mean they're the ones doing the good work i mean i interviewed a guy at backcountry hunters and anglers recently and they're doing all this great work in public mm-hmm. lands policy right now and uh you know he's like yeah yeah trail runners are kind of like freeloaders on public lands <laughs> and i was like yeah, i know i'm one of them and that's why i'm trying to like do some more work on it now because it's so so important i think and it's true like we don't have much threat we kind of can do backcountry skiers same way for the most part we can do whatever we want and there's no license to buy there's no you know the access isn't as hard as like rock climbing or mountain bike where you can go into a wilderness area i mean we can mm-hmm. kind of do anything we want and <laughs> in some ways it can be argued that we have lesser impact right But I think we all have to remember that no matter what we do, we have impact. Everywhere you leave a footprint makes the trail a little deeper. Right. Everywhere you leave a skin track makes it a little harder for the lynx to stay away from (laughs) the coyotes and the foxes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as much as we like to think we're very light on the land and perhaps we are lighter than others, every action has an impact. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just being responsible. Yeah, I think it's the responsible. I think it's the responsible thing to do. I'm getting older. I'm like all about responsibility these days. As I'm like shirking, I'm sure so many other responsibilities in my life, <laughs> all for public lands. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad we could talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, two closing questions. Uh-oh. Uh, what's on tap? Ooh. Uh, a summer of spring and summer of running. Oh, yeah. You signed up no, for any? No surprise. I'm I'm signed up for the Hard Rock 100. That's like the 
most fun and most crazy hard 100 miler in the United States. Uh, so that's in July, and I've done that a couple times and really love it. It's a great community of people down there and culture. So I'll probably spend a few weeks in Colorado, bouncing around in southwest Colorado. Uh, I'll do a couple races regionally here just to kind of tune up for that. Um, and then kind of leaving my August open for maybe another adventure. Probably nothing as long as the Crown Traverse, but I've, there's a few mountain ranges I've got my eyes on that I would just love to really like run across as fast as I can, which looks a lot like hiking because they're <laughs> hundreds of miles in length and you can't run that whole time on that kind of terrain. But uh, yeah, you know, that's it. And then I'm, I'm excited for another winter of ski mountaineer racing. Yeah, I mean, being a part of the U.S. ski team has been really inspiring and feeling like you're a part of something. It's, it's cool. And there's a lot of... Uh, just like social support there, which makes it fun and people making plans together and that kind of thing. So, yeah, writing a lot of letters to U.S. representatives in Congress. <laughs> okay, final question. Yeah. How long does it take you to do a transition? What's your record? Oh. And by transition, for our listeners, I mean you're at the top of the hill, you rip your skins, yeah. stuff them in your speed suit, Lock your heels down. Yeah. Put your boots in ski mode and go. So it goes boots, binding, skins. <laughs> <laughs> so you put your poles down. You <laughs> put your boots into ski mode. You rip up your bindings, uh, your heel pieces. You rip a skin off. You rip a skin off. Put them in your skin suit. And as you're skiing out, you click your heels in officially. And you have to do it before you leave the transition zone. And that takes me 18, 17 or 18 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you can do it even a few seconds faster if it's the last transition going from up to down you don't care about taking care of your skins anymore skin management is very important so you can just wad them up in this crazy ball and shove them into your skin suit without thinking about it and that can save you a few seconds on that and that's like 13 seconds um, and then down to up so you get to the bottom of a skin or a ski and you got to skin up something so that means taking each ski off one at a time, getting your skin out, putting it on the ski, putting your ski back on, clicking your toe into it, making sure that your heel piece is set for uphill on each ski and then going. That's like low 30s, like 33 seconds. So. All right. That's what it <laughs> Nobody takes. cares. Everybody's like, <laughs> that guy's a dork. <laughs> no, I love it. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it you uh taking the time yeah this is fun thank you thanks again for tuning in you know the drill if you like the podcast please share it um please give us a review on itunes and if you feel so inclined, um, please donate to support the future of the Powderite podcast. Until uh, next time, cheers.